All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you're using the Black Bibles, that's page 998. Our text today is Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, which this is a beautiful passage on the gospel, on the good news of Jesus Christ. I know we haven't been studying through the book of Titus currently, so let me just set kind of the immediate context. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is instructing Titus to teach the believers in Crete to do good, specifically in this context, to do good to their unsaved neighbors. Um, He knew that Christians are often tempted to look down on unbelievers But Paul wants the believers to remember uh, who they were before God saved them. So that as they're seeing the the sin and depravity of the world around them, they again will remember that used to be me, and but for the grace of God that still would be me. And so that kind of correct mindset uh, will will help us as believers to um, have compassion on the lost. So that's the immediate context we've Um, we're going to be focusing on just the gospel itself uh, specifically this morning. So, again, our text is verses 3 through 7. I'd ask the congregation to stand once again, please, for the reading of God's word. Let's hear the word of God together. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is Our Salvation Story. Every believer has a salvation story. Some who were saved as adults can remember vivid details of their conversion. They can remember what they were like before God saved them through Jesus Christ. Others who were saved at a a younger age may not remember much of what their lives were like before God saved them. But nevertheless, we know from God's word that a dramatic change has taken place in the life of every believer. All Christians are new creations. Again, the the circumstances of our conversion will will differ, but fundamentally, we all have a similar salvation story. And Titus Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, is our salvation story. Every single one of us who are in Christ, this is our story. This is what God did. This is what was true of us. This is what God did in our lives. And so... By the reason I came to this passage today, 
I was thinking about how we concluded the Gospel of Matthew last week, right? With the Great Commission to go into all the world and, and take um, the, the Gospel, the good news, and make disciples of all nations. And so by studying these verses today, I wanted to remind us of what our story is. One of the tools we can use in, in telling people about Jesus is our story. And, and certainly, again, this, is, is, this passage itself is, is full of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want everyone to know, even if you were, grew up in, in the church, even if you were saved at a young age, I want you to know that you have a story to tell. And again, the, the, the hero of that story is, is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all three of whom we will see active in this passage. And so again, by, by studying these verses today, here's my prayer. I pray that our hearts will be stirred with gratitude to God and that we will realize that as believers, we have a salvation story to tell as we go into the world to make disciples of all nations. So today I want to work through verses 3 through 7 under three headings. What we were, what God did, and what we become. So heading number one, what we were. We see that in verse 3. right? Our, our condition before God saved us through Christ is, is summarized in this one verse. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a description, right? And again, the Bible says a lot more about our condition before God saved us. But this in and of itself is is such a, a, a devastating description of what we were. Again, Paul here is reminding the believers in Crete what they were like before God saved them. And by him doing that, he's describing the condition of all of us. What all of us were like before God saved us. What all of us were like without Christ. Look, look, again, let's go through the list rather quickly, but just at least touch on each description here. It begins saying, we were once foolish now, when we hear the word foolish, we tend to think of someone, oh, someone who's silly, someone who's immature, right? But when the Bible uses the word fool, it's using it to describe living, someone who lives as if there were no God. What a, what a terrible way to live, right? What a, what a deadly way to live. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Think about that. Before God saved us, before conversion, we, in, in essence, lived as if there was no God. Either we didn't believe in God or we paid him little attention. We, we did what we wanted to do. We gave no to little thought uh, to God's will. We gave no thought to God's glory. We gave no thought to God's authority over us. We gave no thought to standing before God to depending on God, to hungering after God. We, we gave no thought to God, by and large. We lived with no regard to God or to His word, to His laws, to His commandments. We did not seek to know God. We did not seek to honor God or obey God. And that leads to the next description of who we were without Christ. 
disobedient. Before God saved us, we were disobedient. <laughs> that, there's a character quality for you, right? We were disobedient. We were disobedient to parents, to teachers, to coaches, to bosses, to the laws of the land. Of course, ultimately, we were disobedient to God. Again, whether we were, whether we were doing that willfully or just in ignorance, we were disobedient to God. And again, some more blatant than others, right? I mean, some it's more blatantly noticeable than others. But we all had this attitude deep down of, I'm going to do what I want. It's my life. No one is going to tell me what I can or can't do. We were disobedient. Not only were we willfully disobedient, but as we continue through verse 3, we see that there were outside forces that were against us, that were entrapping us. Look at the next description. We were led astray. All right, so that's talking about something from the outside that is deceiving us, that's, that's yanking us along, leading us down a wrong path. Before God saved us, Satan had us deceived. If you want a parallel passage to, the, to this one this morning, go study Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, describe what we were like before God saved us. How we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan had us believing all kinds of lies, deadly lies. Again, things, a lie like perhaps there is no God. A lie, again, perhaps like it's your life. You should be able to live how you want. Or th- this attitude this, of this life is all there is. So, I mean, you got to just live it to the fullest. you got to get as much as you can from this life. Or another lie could be that the things of this world will satisfy. Right? How many in our culture follow that lie? I mean, that's just, that's just the, the stream of the culture. You don't even have to, have to you know, willfully acknowledge it or choose it. You just kind of get plunged into it. And it's like, okay, well, I got to go after this. You know, I mean, that's, that's how our whole economy is set up. You need this. You need this. Get this. Get this. That's what will satisfy you. Another lie, another way we were led astray is, again, some people would acknowledge there's a God. They would acknowledge there's an afterlife. But, but they believe that all roads lead to heaven, Right? You know, you just need to be sincere in what, you're, what you believe. Uh, if there's a God, he's going he's gonna to let whoever seeks him in, however they seek him. No one has a right to say that their way is the right way. Right? This kind of postmodern, pluralistic mindset. That truth is relative. These are all ways that people are led astray when they don't have the Spirit of God, when they're without Christ. And these are all ways that we ourselves were led astray. Because this is by nature how we will think, how we will live. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's how they're led astray. They're, they're blinded... So that they don't see the glory of who Jesus is. Think about your story. 
Do you remember when you didn't see the glory of who Jesus is? When you didn't realize who he was, what he had done, what his life, death, and resurrection had accomplished. Again, maybe you believed in Jesus. Maybe you thought he was a real person. Maybe he was no more than just a curse word to you. Or maybe you didn't understand or believe that he was God incarnate. Yes, he was a good teacher and and he taught a lot of good things. Or or maybe you didn't believe that he died and rose again. You didn't believe in in a resurrection. Or maybe you did believe that, but you didn't understand the significance of it. Why did he die on the cross? What's, why did he rise again? What does that mean? Was this, was this just an example of sacrifice? Was this, this just a, a, an example of love that we should follow? You didn't realize that on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, who had left the glories of heaven and became a man, that he was on that cross bearing the sins and the shame and the punishment of his people. You didn't understand that Jesus was saving you from the wrath of God by suffering on the cross. You didn't consider that Christ's resurrection means that he is Lord of all. That he has conquered sin and death. That all authority has been given to him as we considered last week. You didn't realize or think about that Yeah, it, Jesus isn't just you know, someone good that we could follow, but he is Lord, he is King, he demands our allegiance. No, you didn't see the glory of Christ because we were dead in our sins. We were, we were blind. We were led astray, as this verse says. We were deceived. Again, think about, of that picture of being led astray. Right? I remember, and, and I think this happens uh, kind of semi-regularly right but when you're running like a 5k 10k whatever right and I've been I remember one of those I ran and we, we took a wrong turn you know <laughs> and I think I think we did it because there were other people in front of us that did it right and so you're just kind of like following the crowd you know next thing you realize you're off the course and now great you know I uh, created extra work for myself here you know um But that's just a race. But think of what it means in life to be led astray. And that's what Satan does, right? Through blinding us to the glory of Christ, through these lies of the world system that we're saturated with, he leads people, what does Matthew say, down the broad path that leads to destruction. Like the Pied Piper leading his just kind of Captive, clueless prisoners. Satan was leading us down the broad path toward destruction, eternal destruction, and we didn't even realize it. We were headed for an eternity in hell had God not intervened by his grace. And that's what we'll see in the following verses, but we're not done with the descriptions yet. Look Again, at verse 3, it says, we were also enslaved. Or the way Titus here, 3.3 says, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Again, Ephesians 2 says the same thing, right? We bought into this, again, the, the lies of the devil, the world's lies of if it feels good, do it. Satisfy your desires, your bodily appetites. Well, that sounds, that sounds great. And matter of fact, in a way, that sounds like freedom, but it's actually bondage, isn't it? 
because it never satisfies. And it just, Ephesians talks about this, that you just have a continual lust for more. You, you pursue one thing, and that's okay, that there's a little bit of pleasure for a, little, for a little while, but that quickly fades, and now you need it again, or you need something greater and greater and greater, and it never satisfies. Without the Holy Spirit, we were enslaved to our sinful desires. Think about how much of our time and resources, whether, again, whether it was our thoughts, whether it was our money, whether it was our energy, think how much of that was poured into trying to satisfy our desires, these sinful desires. Our lives were consumed with that. Yeah, maybe we were doing a job, but we were thinking about how can I satisfy that next desire, that next desire. And again, throughout this, I want us to think back what our story is, what we were like before God saved us. Think of examples in your life. What passions and pleasures were you enslaved to before God saved you through Christ? What characterized your life? Was it anger? Were you enslaved to anger? You always flew off the handle at somebody. They they were like, oh, stay away from him or her, man. Short fuse, you know, redhead, whatever they would say, but it was, it was a bondage that was destructive. Maybe you were enslaved to substances, to alcohol or drugs. Maybe you were enslaved to sexual pleasures. Maybe it was excessive food and entertainment. Maybe it was to something that's more... A little harder to quantify or notice, but maybe you were enslaved to people's opinion of you. Right? That, that's bondage. That's something that you can never satisfy. You're never going to please everybody, right? Maybe it was you were enslaved to comparing yourself to others. He's going to get to envy here in this list. Right? You were always jealous and envious and Why can't I look like that? Why can't I have what he or she has? Perhaps you were consumed by fear or worry. And again, as Christians, even as I'm going through this list, you're probably, you might be thinking to yourself, I still struggle with these things, right? Some of these things or all these things. Yeah, as Christians, we still struggle with some of these sins. That's called our remaining sin, right? And so we see how, how destructive that is, how, how, how strong that pull can be at times. But then think of what it would be like if we were still enslaved to it, right? Again, as a Christian, if you know what it is to battle against those sinful desires, try to think and, and maybe remember if you can what it was like when those desires ruled you. How dreadful, how hopeless it was to be enslaved to sin. Though again, another tragic twist of that is usually those who are enslaved to sin, I, I probably shouldn't even say usually, they're blind to the fact that they're in bondage, aren't they? They're blind to the fact that they're enslaved. But the fact is, as slaves to sin, again, I'm talking about what it does to us, maybe what it does to others, but Again, 
think what sin is, right? As slaves to sin, that means we're continually sinning against God. We're continually sinning against our Creator. We're continually, uh, how does the Bible say, storing up wrath for ourselves. That one day we'll have to stand before our judge. And like I said, this enslavement to sin, this, this, this uh, heart that it was bent inward toward ourselves, it, it caused all kinds of destruction in our own life and in the lives of others as well. It, we often saw people as objects to satisfy our desires or objects to somehow get me further along, right? Because again, the, the big idol of my life before Christ was me. And so everyone I encounter, you know, how can they help me? How can they serve me? How can, right? Being enslaved to selfishness, we often took advantage of people instead of serving them or caring about their needs. We were oftentimes focused on ourselves and what we wanted. And that That self-centeredness, and you guys have lived this. Some of you still are living this with family members who are still without Christ, right? That self-centeredness hurts others. It, It oftentimes destroys relationships. And that's where he goes, really, with this description. Now in verse 3, he moves into how we treated others. Without Christ, we were... Look at verse 3. Passing our days in malice and envy. We don't use that word malice very often, but malice means wishing people evil. Wishing evil on people. And, And again, envy, what we saw, is resenting, coveting the good things that other people have. Wow, what two sides of the coin there, right? We... We, we wished evil on people, and if something good happened to them, we kind of resented that something good happened to them, and we wish it would have happened to us instead. What an ugly and awful way to, to treat people. But that's how people act without Christ. And God's common grace maybe keeps them from living this out to the extreme. As I've heard Pat says several times, right, I think quoting John, uh, some are better at keeping the lid on the trash can than others, right? By God's grace, common grace. But nevertheless, this is what was true in every person's heart. Before God saved us, we're often not happy, again, thinking of this word envy, not happy for someone when something good happened to them, right? Have you ever had those thoughts even now in your remaining sin? How come they get that? Well, she doesn't deserve that. Why can't I have things like that? Without Christ, we were thinking that way all the time. We were assuming the worst about people. Oh, he thinks he's big stuff now that he got that promotion, right? Or they act like their son is the best player on the team when clearly my child is better, right? Deep down, we often actually wished, and again, most of us wouldn't, would ever admit this or we don't even want to, examine ourselves to 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 find this ugliness but deep down we often actually wish that people would go through some trials maybe to quote knock them off their high horse right or they need to know how it feels right they need to know how my life feels malice and envy 
Like I notice what the verse says, we did this a lot. We were passing our days. It wasn't just a, a stray thought once in a while of malice and envy. No, I mean, this was a daily thing. This is what characterized our, our attitude toward others. Malice and envy. The normal thought pattern of our lives. So sin left an ugly mark on our, on our lives and on our relationships. We're not done yet, right? The, the verse continues. It says, without Christ we were hated by others and hating one another. <laughs> that, kinda, that covers everything, doesn't it? We were hating one another and then they, we were hated by others. And, and if you think about it, you see this in, in unbelievers by and large. Before Christ, many of our relationships were marked by strife. They were marked by conflict. Maybe it was backbiting or gossiping or taking advantage of someone else or, or holding grudges or tearing someone down to make ourselves look better. Hating others who didn't hold to our political views or hating someone else who doesn't hold to our, our social cultural views. We see remnants of that even now as Christians, right? We, 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 we have conflict because we're still sinners who battle that remaining sin. We still deal with conflict because we live in a fallen world and we ourselves bring sin into every relationship. But by God's grace, with the, uh, these conflicts should look a lot different now, don't they? <laughs> right? We should... Any kind of conflict should now quickly be followed up with confession and repentance and asking for forgiveness and reconciliation and, 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 you know, having a heart that's ready to forgive and not holding grudges towards someone and wishing the best for someone. The Holy Spirit makes a big difference in our lives. We're new creations now. But before Christ came, before Christ came into our life, I should say, our lives were marked by this kind of hatred and conflict. When we were unbelievers, many of our social interactions were marked by a general lack of trust and, and a frequent lack of peace, a steady lack of love. Right? We were fueled by pride. If someone wronged us, we, or, or if we got in a conflict with someone, we, we thought they were all wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. We would dig our heels in and we'd hold on to that hate and bitterness for a long time. Maybe we even said, or at least we thought, I'll never forgive that person for what they did to me. And you look at verse 3 in its totality, and you think about what our lives were marked by. This sin, this conflict, this hatred, this ugliness, this, this lack of peace, this lack of love. Everything filtered through what's best for me, looking out for number one. Verse 3 is a reminder of how sinful and wretched our lives were without Christ. Of course, he didn't even explicitly say, you know, about being without God, right? I mean, he said a foolish, but separated from God. At war, at enmity with God. Maybe you remember what it was like to be far from God. To believe there's a God, but to for him to seem so distant and to have this, this nagging underlying lack of peace, right? A restlessness because you knew you weren't right with God. 
You knew, you, you feared one day if you ever would have to stand before your creator. Maybe you remember what that was like. Again, what memory, maybe you remember what it was like to be caught in the world's lies and, and, and uh, enslavement, to just be living for the weekend, to just be partying, just trying to grab whatever pleasure you could from this life, to be entangled in toxic relationships. And I know some of you have been saved at a young age. And, and it's easy for, for you to say, well, I don't remember what that was like. I, I didn't spend a bunch of years out there living in the world in bondage to sin. So what should we say to you? Well, first off, I'd say praise God for that, right? Praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his grace in your life that you grew up in a home where you could hear the word of God. And again, that's no no ironclad promise. It was, still God, it was God's grace, as we'll see, that appeared to you personally. That saved you. That opened your eyes. Praise God for that, that he would spare you a bunch of years of, of pain and regret. So may you never, you know, be uh, <laughs> uh, complacent about that or almost kind of like, like you've been shortchanged. No, you've been blessed. Right, if you were saved at a young age. But again, as I've said a couple of times, and I really want everyone to get this. Even if you were saved at a young age, verses 3 through 7 is still your salvation story. Verse 3 still describes what you were like. There was a point when verse 3 was you. You know, maybe it was the first five, seven years of your life, I don't know, but it was still you. Everyone starts off that way. Every one of us is born enslaved to sin. Every one of us is born separated from God. You may not remember it, but just go ask your parents. They'll tell you about tempers, temper tantrums in the crib, right? They'll tell you about slugging your, your sister, right? They'll tell you about not wanting to share that toy with someone who came over. And again, we look at those things and some of us, if, if you're a grandparent or whatever, or visiting, you might say, oh, that's cute, oh, ha, 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 right? Parents don't think it's that cute, right? Because they got to deal, deal with it all the time. But it's not cute, right? I mean, it's sin. It doesn't matter how pretty they are or how big their eyes are. That, that's sin. And, and, and that's just the, the, the beginnings of what it would blossom into everything that... Verse 3 was describing, right? Hating one another. As Christians, I've said it several times, but we still have remaining sin. So we all still know what it's like to be selfish and to be jealous and to battle feelings of even maybe hatred towards someone, to battle sin, the sin of pride and lust and greed. And so as I was thinking about this and thinking about our salvation story, because by God's grace, I was saved at a young age as well. But when now as I look and see what it's like to battle that remaining sin, it's like I kind of project forward and think, what would that be like? If I, how, how awful would that be if that sin was not just remaining sin, not just a remnant of sin, but my master still? It's not hard to imagine what that would be like. 
So verse 3 describes all of us before Christ. And it would be every one of us still were it not for the grace of God. What a miserable plight. I, I know I've probably spent a long time on it, but we need to be reminded of it, right? We were in bondage. We didn't realize it. We were in a, if, if we even did realize it, we couldn't free ourselves. We couldn't make ourselves right with God. We couldn't pay for our sins, and we couldn't stop sinning. Verse 3 describes us without Christ, what we were. But then beginning in verse 4, we see what God did. Verse 4, but, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. What a beautiful way to describe that, right? Into our dark and miserable and hopeless state. Into that dark dungeon of our sin. The beautiful light of God's goodness and loving kindness appeared. Of course, when we think of the goodness and and love of God, the ultimate demonstration of that is the cross. Is His Son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says... God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we heard read earlier, 1 John 4, 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, that sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath for our sins. So God sending his only son to suffer and die in our place is the ultimate demonstration of his goodness and love. And if we were to flip back to Titus chapter 2, we would see Paul describing the coming of Christ in these terms. The grace of God has appeared. Very similar description. But now here in chapter 3, the goodness and love of God has again appeared. And specifically what he's talking about here is when... The Holy Spirit gave each one of us the new birth. That's what Titus 3 is talking about. That's when the the love, the loving kindness, the goodness of God appeared. When, When the Holy Spirit made us alive in Christ. Think of what that was like. And into our heart of wickedness, God's goodness by His Spirit appeared. Into that life of of selfishness and hate, God's loving kindness appeared. God, who is good and loving, chose to show these qualities to us by saving us. God saved us. I love the simplicity of that statement in verse 5, right? He saved us. And the text will talk more about the new birth in a moment. So just kind of put a pause on that. But first it answers the question, why did God save us? He saved us. Why? Why would he do that? Well, notice verse 5 says, Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Again, what was the basis for him saving us? Well, he didn't save us because of our righteous deeds. That's very clear, isn't it? He didn't, in other words, he didn't save us because we deserved it. He didn't look down and say, oh, well, look, there's Johnny. He's, he's a pretty good boy or a good young man or whatever the case may be. I think I'll save him. No. Isaiah 64, 
6 says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. None of us deserve to be saved. We did not deserve to be saved. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. God didn't save us because of our righteous deeds. Why then? What does the text say? Why did he save us? Because of his mercy. Not by works done, or not of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There's the grounds of why we were saved. The mercy of God. Mercy is, speaks of deep pity or compassion that moves a person to do something. In other words, mercy is, is looking on someone's condition and seeing how dire that condition is and then doing something about it. Think how God did that for you. He looked at you. He saw your condition. He saw that bondage. He saw that blindness. He saw that deceit. He saw you being led astray. He saw you being cut off from him. He saw you uh, storing up wrath for yourself. And he did something about it. Of course, 2,000 years earlier, he had already done something about it, right? By sending his son to die on the cross. And then in your life, in his perfect timing, he did something about it. His spirit came and gave you the new birth and drew you to Christ. God had pity on us. He saw that we were lost and enslaved and dead in our sins. He saw that we had no hope of finding our way, no power to free ourselves, no way of giving ourselves life. And so what did he do? He acted on our behalf. He gave us that life that we need. He chose to save us through his son, Jesus Christ, by giving us the new birth. The new birth I mentioned earlier is now described in more detail here in verses 5 and 6. It says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, both those phrases describe the new birth. The new birth. Right? Again, we're dead in our sin. We didn't read it yet but earlier, but... Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Without the new birth, none of us would be saved. By nature, the Bible says we are dead in our sins. Our hearts, that means our hearts are dead to God. They have no spiritual life in them. We don't love God. We don't worship Him. We don't honor His Son. Like we saw earlier, we're blind to see the glory of who Jesus is. We're blind to the fact that He's the only way to be reconciled to God. But God, in His goodness and loving kindness, appears to sinners like us. I I love that. Again, I picture a dark dungeon. But that that darkness, that dungeon is our heart. And the, the light of the gospel, the light of truth by the Holy Spirit appeared and shined into our lives through the word of God. Through the spirit, excuse me, through the word, the spirit makes us alive. The spirit replaces our dead hearts with living hearts, giving us faith to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. These phrases, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, they are describing the new birth. And they're 
they're also helpful descriptions of, of salvation in general, aren't they? Of what takes place. When God saves us, we are washed. All our sins are washed away. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12 Though our sins were like scarlet, we are made white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 The washing of regeneration. Oh, what a beautiful picture. And then the re- renewal of the Holy Spirit. When God saves us, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means we experience a complete transformation. We go from being dead in sin to being alive to God. We go from being a slave to sin to being free, or we could say to being a slave to Christ. We go from darkness to light. We go from being an enemy of God to a dearly loved son. Renewal. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. We're united with Christ by faith. And that means we have new life. We have a new heart that loves God now. We've been cleansed from our sins. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Because God has richly poured out the Spirit on us through Jesus Christ. Don't you love that word, richly? <laughs> I love that when, whenever the Bible is talking about God's grace or his, his love. It, richly and abounding. and right, He has richly poured on us the Spirit through Jesus Christ. As Christians, we don't need to be looking for a, a second anointing of the Holy Spirit. No, at conversion, we are given all of the Holy Spirit. We are made new creations. And now we are to yield, the, the process of sanctification is yielding ourselves to the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, having the Spirit control us and transform us. That's called being filled with the Spirit. But we're given all the Spirit richly at the new birth. Verse 7 gives another description of our salvation. So that being justified by His grace. Again, this could be a whole message in and of itself, right? We've talked about that in weeks previous justification means we are declared righteous in God's courtroom because Christ paid our punishment by his death and he lived a perfect life on our behalf and so God justifies us by his grace by his unmerited favor that means now we stand forgiven and clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness which means we can be with God In this beautiful passage, which is a, really one of those just real single long sentences in the original, we see all three members of the Trinity working together for our salvation. Did you notice that? There's more that could be said about this as we look at other passages, but even just in this passage, we see that God the Father saves us by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit who is poured out on us through Christ Jesus. Praise God. Praise the triune God for saving us. And praise God for his character that moved him to save us. Again, we didn't deserve it. He didn't need us. But he saves us because of who he is. Did you notice all the attributes of God that are mentioned in in this brief passage? His goodness. His loving kindness. His mercy. His grace. 
What, what attributes to praise God for? So far we've seen what we were without Christ and what God did. And so thirdly and, and finally, notice what we become. That's the end of verse 7. What we become, or at least that's the way the, the verse says it. So that being justified by His grace, here it is. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heir points to inheritance, which points to adoption, right? In saving us, God not only rescues us from the eternal judgment that we deserve, but he also adopts us and makes us heir of his promises. The promises, again, that ultimately belong to Christ are shared with us. We're called co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. Galatians 4 5 through 7 talks about that adoption. It says, God sent his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Talking about a lot of the same things, isn't it? That was Galatians 4, 5 through 7. So we're made heirs. Well, what do we inherit? It says we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, so there's a piece of it, right? Eternal life. But what is our ultimate inheritance? Romans 8, 17 says we are heirs of God. Heirs of God. God is our inheritance. Again, we inherit some amazing other things like resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth, reigning with Christ. But all of that is to set the stage for our ultimate inheritance, which is God. Eternal life in glory with God. We are saved in order to be with God. We who were once far off, we who once were fools, living as if there was no God, we've now been brought near and reconciled to God himself. So much so that God himself by his spirit has taken residence in us. And one day we'll be with him in glory. We are reconciled to God now and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit now as the down payment. And so that means we can fellowship with God through, through prayer and praise, the word, through through the other means of grace with the church. But one day, when Christ returns, we will enjoy this inheritance in full. When Christ returns, we will enjoy unhindered fellowship with God in glory forever. Think of what that will be like, right? No more divided heart. Together with the saints, with no more strife or conflict, right? No more of, of battling that sin. Just with pure hearts and bodies, we will enjoy God in glory forever. So, to recap this passage. God in his grace and mercy has taken us who were dead in sins and made us alive in Christ. He has taken us who were stained with sin and he's washed us and renewed us by the Holy Spirit. God has taken us who were enslaved and led astray and he has set us free to serve Christ. He's taken us who were guilty rebels and he's declared us righteous. He's taken us who were on our way to eternal death and punishment and he's made us heirs of eternal 
life. Praise God for his mercy and his grace and his loving kindness and his goodness. That's our salvation story, loved ones. If you're a Christian today, no matter what age God saved you, this is your story. So, two closing applications about that. Number one, enjoy your story. We could say with that, know your story, right? I guess. (laughs) Know your story and enjoy it. (laughs) Revel in your story. May you say with the hymn writer, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Remind yourself of your story often. Why? Remind your story often to the praise of God that your heart would overflow with praise and to your own joy. And those two go hand in hand, don't they? The more, the more our hearts are filled with joy and, 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 and loving what we have in God, the more he is glorified. So enjoy your story. And secondly, I bet you guys can guess this second one. What do you do with a story? You tell it, right? Tell your story. Tell your story. Like we saw last week when we finished up the Gospel of Matthew, the risen Lord Jesus Christ has commissioned us, his church, to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. Unbelievers need to hear the Gospel. They need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember, for them, verse 3 of Titus 3 is not past tense. They can't say we once were like this. They still are like this. They still are foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to passions and pleasures. They still are passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. They still are separated from God and headed for eternal destruction. But God is still saving sinners through the gospel. He's still saving sinners through his church being that those instances instruments the mouthpieces the ambassadors to tell this story to tell this good news so loved ones pray for opportunities pray for boldness and clarity and tell others the gospel tell them your story tell them that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die in the place of sinners Tell them that Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. Tell them that everyone who turns from their sins and embraces Jesus as Savior and Lord is forgiven and promised eternal life with God. That's a beautiful story and we all can know it and tell it. And like Paul said in Colossians 4.3, pray for God to open a door for the word. Open, give for God to open doors with your unsafe friends and co-workers and neighbors and family. To open that door for the gospel. And then for boldness and clarity to proclaim it as you should. And as you do, you pray that God in his grace might give them the new birth. And save them through Christ just like he did you. And as we close, we've been talking about our salvation story. And perhaps you're here today and you don't have one. You don't have a salvation story. You've never trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord. You're still living for yourself. You're still enslaved in your sinful passions. Your life, if you're honest, is still marked by disobedience to God and oftentimes strife with others. 
today could be the beginning of your salvation story. The Bible says, behold, now is the day of salvation. So by God's grace, turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Admit you are a sinner and call out to God to save you through Jesus Christ. Escape the coming judgment and know eternal life with God. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. May everyone leave here today having a salvation story. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all these qualities of you. Again, that you are three in one, that you are so merciful and gracious and loving and kind and good. We praise you for sending your son, for demonstrating your love to to send your own son to suffer and die in the place of sinners like us. We praise you that you didn't leave us in our sin but that your grace and love and kindness appeared. That you shone that light of the gospel into our hearts. You you opened our eyes to the glory of Christ crucified and risen and exalted. Oh, we praise you for that. We thank you for being so kind to us, for for saving us, though we didn't deserve it, though we were your enemies, though we were rejecting you and actively sinning against you. Thank you, thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Help us to just rejoice in this story. Help us to praise you and glory in our story. And again, we pray for opportunities to tell others about this story. May you be pleased, even this morning, to draw any who are without Christ to yourself. May you give them the new birth. May you continue to show the power of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing a final song of praise this morning.